This episode of B2B Marketing Leaders is brought to you by DGMG. That's my members-only community for B2B marketers. There's over 2,300 members, and it's awesome because it's really like having a sounding board outside of your company. Inside of the group, you can get feedback, recommendations on tools, campaign ideas, and more. I see people ask questions about hiring, team structure, ad targeting, copy feedback. It's incredible, and it's the reason that I'm in the group basically every day sharing stuff too. I feel like it's a group of people I want to be around to get better as a B2B marketer too. And because you're here listening to B2B Marketing Leaders... You can get in the group for just $1 for your first month, and then after that, it's 10 bucks a month, and it's super easy to expense. You could even do an annual. It's like 100 bucks a year. It makes it really easy to send to your CFO. flies under the radar. It's 100 bucks. It's really easy, but there's 10 to 12 new posts every single day, and you can go in there daily, and you can even go and see all the content from last year. I know that if you're in B2B marketing, you will go in there, and you'll be like, huh, I get what Dave was talking about. I know you'll see the ROI from the community alone instantly, and even more so now that you can get in there for your first month for just a dollar. So there's a special link in the show notes of this show where you can go and sign up for a dollar. Go and check that out. This episode is also brought to you by my friends at Lemon Pie. They're the ones who produce this show for me. They're awesome at what they do, and I can't recommend their work enough. They make it super easy for me, and I know that they can help you too if you want to launch a podcast strategy for your brand. Check them out at www.lemonpie.fm and tell them I sent you. That's www.lemonpie.fm. Tell them that I sent you. All right, let's get into this episode. Hey, I'm Dave Gerhardt, and you're listening to the B2B Marketing Leaders Podcast. This is the place where I share B2B marketing lessons and learnings every week. My guest on this episode is Ross Simmons. He's the founder of Foundation, a B2B content marketing agency, and a great follow on Twitter. One of the best, at the coolest cool. Follow him if you want content marketing stuff, but after you listen to this interview, you'll know exactly why. All right, let's get into it. My conversation with Ross. Okay. Actually, I have a question. I'm just going to get you going right away. So I was, I had this thought the other day and I was like, how come nobody has done, like how come influencer marketing is such a big thing in like B2C and e-com? And, and so I just started, I was like, how come nobody's talking about this? And sure enough, I go to YouTube yeah. and I put in B2B influencer marketing right. and I see a video from you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, your hair was a little shorter back, back sure? then. It was a couple of years ago, but you know, shout out to you because you were talking about it two years ago. Let's talk about that. Like, do you think that influencer, like, why is nobody playing into the B2B influencer space? And the reason I'm asking is because, like, if you just go back to, I've seen this thing from Chris Walker lately on LinkedIn talking about, like, just conversion rates of leads. No surprise, the best leads that close are the organic ones. And organic comes from content and word of mouth. And so why aren't people thinking about influencers from a B2B standpoint? Great question. I think it's because B2B marketers overthink the complexity of our job. I think we over-complexify this space that we work in. And as a result, we think totally. well, the, buying, the, the buying cycle for a B2B buyer is way, way, way more complex. Like with B2C, you get a Kardashian to put up a post and you can generate a bunch of sales. But B2B buyers don't work that way. Like there's a lot of friction in the thinking around B2B. And I think it's, to be honest, associated a lot with ego in our space more than anything. But the truth is, B2B influencer marketing works. And I've leveraged it significantly over the last few years to generate results for clients as well as for my own company. And as long as B2B marketers are willing to sleep on it, 
I'm okay with it because I can generate the results and generate the ROI on the back of it. Uh, I love it. So you've actually been doing it. Give me some examples of like, because I think I think you're 100% right. Yeah. I think where people are like, the part that I'm struggling with is like, who would that be and how would that relationship work? So tell me Good about question. it. So I'll talk you through the hypothesis that led to it and actual clear examples of how we've done it. So hypothesis, I started a company called Hustle and Grab. It was an e-commerce brand that sold coffee. We were generating tons of engagement online, on social, et cetera. We had one influential Instagram account put up a post of Hustle and Grind. That post went viral. We had a handful of folks sharing it, retweeting it, like top celebrities talking about it, et cetera. Generated a significant amount of sales. I was like, all right, this is interesting, but this is from a B2C play. How do I take the same thinking and apply it from a B2B lens? So I said, all right, there's a bunch of B2B podcasters who have significant audiences. I'm going to get one of my folks on the team to create a spreadsheet with every podcast and do an outreach campaign, just like a Kevin Hart would do a tour across the different cities. Let's do a tour across a bunch of podcasts and reach out to every single one. And we're going to go on these podcasts and we're going to talk about an asset that we've created called the B2B distribution checklist. Go out, do that, amplified it, generated a handful of people who downloaded it. Love it. We'll go and do the funnel and then they buy we did that again, another experiment. I w- reached out to, I went to the top post on Instagram, just typed in the hashtag marketing. I said, I'm going to run an experiment when I'm going to just spend $1,000 reaching out to these influencers who are talking about marketing on Instagram. And I'm going to see what happens if they promote a course or an asset that we've created for foundation as well as for clients. Guess what happened? More leads, more inbound, more people downloading these things. So it's very straightforward in terms of the approach that you can take to do it. And we've leveraged this time and time again, whether it's doing webinar series where we reach out to on behalf of clients, like let's reach out to this executive who has a bunch of followers and get them to host a webinar. And we're going to invite just a few key influencers, a few key buyers to get them a part of this. Or let's hire this writer who's well-known in the industry to contribute to your site. And then they write that guest blog post that goes on your site. And then you now have a retainer relationship where month over month, this influencer is writing on your site and you're able to get the presence of association with those values. Another low hanging fruit that I'm seeing right now is like actually hiring influencers, like full on, you see an influencer, they're killing it in your lane, in your niche, you reach out, you hire them, whether it's a fractional CMO or they're a part of your org you bring them in and you go to, you go to town with them and, and collaborate. I love it. Okay. I got, I got a bunch of follow-ups on that. This is, yeah, this is what sure. I do. So first of all, I love it. I love that approach because I think what's different about what you said is like, I think most people, the bias says, well, like I sell software. There is no Kardashian picture, you know, like I'm not going to take a picture with the coffee. Like if I sell software, right. But like you flipped it, which is instead saying like, well, who has the influence, who has the audiences one of my favorite marketing lines in general is uh, Gary V has this line where he talks about underpriced attention. And I think that what you just laid out is such a good example of that, which is like, look, if you're in B2B, all you're trying to do is find where your customers are. And so like, in this case, Ross making this list of podcasts, those are all people who have the audience. Can you go there and get in front of them? And you can also take that a step further. So like your point around, there's no Kim Kardashian. Okay. So you create the photo. How do you create the photo? You think about the buyer's journey and you think about problems that people would have along the way. All right. I know that somebody who's trying to buy, let's say a software for Sierra 
is going to probably go to YouTube and type in what's the best CRM. So you hire an influential person who already creates content about SaaS products or has talked about CRM in the past, and you get them to do a demo of your tool, another tool, and another. And then at the end, they talk about which one's the best. Of course, they're probably going to say yours because you built up a relationship, you've helped them along the way, et cetera. And they're going to ideally give an authentic review. But if the review is in your favor, then that's the asset. Yeah. Did you have to incentivize any of the people from a webinar perspective? Did you have to offer them anything? Yeah. So there's offers and incentives around social promotion. So like when it comes to getting them to promote the content, you say in the contract, all right, you're going to create this piece. You're going to create this asset. And then you're also going to promote it out on your social media accounts a few times. We don't control the voice and the message because the influencer knows their audience. So we just say, we just want you to put up two to three posts over the course of the next month. If it's a longer term engagement, then it's like, all right, we need you to also put up a video. We need you to also help us create an ad that's going to include your face and your image, et cetera. But yeah, you want to incentivize that as well. But there's no like variable rates associated with it. Like I'm not going to say, hey, influencer, if you get X number of demos, we then pay you more. Although now that I talk out loud, like there could be an affiliate play there as well. That could be very interesting. But yeah. And honestly, I think you'd also be surprised like how many people will just do it. I think there's also a way to position this in just like value exchange. Like, look, you're an influential CMO or whatever in this space. We want to have you on our webinar. I think like you going right to talking about people was interesting because it's not the, like we have to pay you. It's like, how could you just host, how can you host the party and use influencers to tell your story? Now, Another thing that I was going to ask you from that is about just straight up measurement, right? Like, are you looking at this from a, well, we did an engagement with Ross. We got three leads from him. Yeah. That was shitty ROI. We're not yeah. going to do that again. Like, how, how have you thought about measurement? Yeah, so it's definitely based off of the type of campaign that you're running. So every type of influencer campaign is going to have different goals. Some influencer campaigns are going to be directly related to generating leads. Some influencer campaigns are going to be directly related to opportunities that ultimately get closed. So for example, we've run campaigns where we go after big names in a specific niche and we are very specific in only inviting like CEOs to come to a little private event that happens online and people are going to hear this influencer speak. The people who attend are opportunities for that client. They get there, they're listening to the influencer, the influencer sharing their knowledge, et cetera. The client for us would be like, great, now we have touch points with these individuals. Our sales team can now do their job and say, yeah, we're glad you enjoyed that private event with, let's say, Michael Jordan. It's not Michael, but that would be dope. Hope you got value out of it. Let's chat next week so we can talk yeah. how our solution could help you. So I love it. I also think like, the goal doesn't have to be, you have to know what the reason of doing that campaign. Because honestly, if you're like, I need a quick way to boost sales in the next week, it would not be to do that because the people who go to that are not just going to buy your thing. But like, I heard of a great example. I forget what company it was, but a year or two ago, I was, this is when I was working at Drift. I was backstage talking to some CMO and she had told me about this massive, so you use Michael Jordan. They're like a multi-billion dollar company. They got Obama and yeah. they must've spent, you know, high six figures on Obama and invited and said, let's make a target list of our top 100 accounts. Right. And they invited them to a private something with like a dinner or speech with him. Right. And she said that the conversion rate of that was like 98 out of the 100 people that they invited showed up. And I think I've taken that as not, oh, I should go get Obama, of course, because <laughs> nobody has, you know, $500,000. But like, 
it's all about the offer on your scale. Do it on your scale. That's exactly it. It's the same strategy. It's like, okay, who is the Obama in this category? Like we can talk about waste management in the world of waste management. There's probably an influencer, somebody that everybody (laughs) here about that's going to come in and provide a ton of value to that niche. So like you can get that specific. And the goal, but like your point about follow-up is important, right? Because the goal is not, Hey Ross, saw you at our event. Do you want to buy our thing? It's like, I think that content, I think ultimately that content is about, look, when people talk about brand, I think brand is not your logo. It's not your design. I think brand is your reputation. Hmm. And I think that content is the best way to build your reputation. And so you're using these channels to build your reputation. The only goal of that is now people on that team have something to reach out to and start a conversation with. Like marketing is not always about the bottom of the funnel generating revenue, which, you know, it's important, but like, can you get more at bats for the sales team? Can you open up more doors for conversations? That's what this influencer type of stuff does. Yeah. And I think it's one of the things I've been talking about often is like marketers for too long have thought about marketing like art rather than thinking about it like investing. And it's really like investing. You have a set amount of budget. You have to allocate that budget into things that are going to ultimately pay dividends and have a certain type of ROI. Some things are going to be super risky. Some things are not going to be super risky. But when you start doing things like influential marketing and influencer marketing, there's going to be some elements that are going to be low risk, like getting Obama, very low risk. You know guaranteed that it's going to... (laughs) But the cost is going to be significant, right? Like the cost is going to be super high, but that's a big investment that you're going to make. And you probably have guaranteed risks, like guaranteed ROI. You want to also think about it from like, okay, do we do an influencer campaign on Instagram? For some brands, that's going to be super risky in B2B. But for brands who have done it first, who have invested in it, who have learned it, who have made mistakes and can essentially do it with their eyes closed, it becomes a less risky experiment for them to run. And I think it's all about making those investments to essentially build up that brand like you're talking. Well, like if you use that lens, honestly, most B2B brands have been doing events, right? Whether that's, you know, going back to like Dreamforce or HubSpot inbound or, you know, Marketo does, you know, everybody's doing event has done events. Yeah. You can almost think about it from that lens, which is like, that's influencer marketing, which is you're paying a big name speaker 50 grand to be the keynote at your event. The reason people are going to come to your event is because they're like, oh, I'm a fan of Kevin Hart and he's speaking at this event. And so I'm going to go. And now by association, I've now associated your brand with Kevin Hart. The other thing you mentioned is really important there is portfolio, because also with a portfolio, you will also have short term, like you and I were just talking about this, right? Like we're probably similar age. We have young, you know, young kids. Like if you think about from a portfolio standpoint, you have things that are, there's different time horizons. And so as a marketer, if you only, and I saw you talk about this recently, which is why I'm trying to go here is like, if you only think about the now, then of course you're not going to get the compounding benefits of brand. And so like, as a marketer, you have to look at your chunk of budget for this year, this month, this quarter and say, okay, Maybe I got to spend 70% of it on hitting the number this month, but the other 30% has got to be investing in these assets that are going to compound next year, the year, you know, next quarter, whenever. And I think this mindset shift is so important. Like I'm a huge believer that like every, there's enough for everyone to eat. And the marketing industry is struggling with the ability for CMOs to retain their tenureship and their longevity in the C-suite for a long time, because I think a lot of CMOs are thinking short term. And if we can shift that mindset where we start to say, all right, even if I'm only here for four years, 
I can do things that are going to last 15, it's going to make our entire industry way more respected and easier to get into the boardroom. So when we're thinking about our investments, we need to start thinking about, okay, this effort that I'm doing in Q1 actually has an impact that's going to trickle and may pay dividends in Q4 2030. That's a whole different mindset that nobody's thinking about, but it's so important because finance is thinking that way. Finance knows that if they want to IPO someday, that they need to have their money in order. So marketers, if you want to IPO someday, your brand needs to have it together. Like it has to be yeah. thought long-term as well. It, it can even be shorter than like the 15-year thing, which is right. like, I've been in conversations, which is like, look, hey, we're behind on this number. Right. We can do so many short-term things to catch up, but the reality of it is the way that we would have hit the number is if if six months ago we invested in SEO, right. then that's how we would have gotten the incremental, you know, Exactly. 1,500 visitors we, we need right now. And it's a defense mechanism. So like the, the other reality is it's defense. So when you look at your stock portfolio, it's going to have a little bit of crypto. It's going to have a little bit of bonds. You're going to have a little bit of high growth stocks. You might even have an ETF in there. ETF is probably going to grow at 2% every single year. It's not going to do anything ridiculous for you, but it's going to be there. And when COVID strikes, you lose a whole bunch of your high growth stuff and it all tanks, you still have that ETF that's going to be there to balance you out and to make sure that things are good. The same thing works in content and with our marketing investment. If you have SEO as a foundational level where it is consistent and you are not going anywhere, guess what is a consistent in the future? People going to Google and looking for things. So sure, budgets might tank, but if you already exist because you've put in the work, you put in the energy to have that foundational level of landing pages that are going after high value intent. You have blog posts that are going after keywords that matter. You're not going to suffer as much as you would if something happens like COVID where everybody had to scale back their paid media budgets because they didn't know what was going to happen. The brands that were able to sustain that are like laughing right now because they're able to generate so much ROI. A hundred percent. Okay. Let's, I want to keep going down this content thread with you because I think that that'd be the most specific thing that people get value from. So you have this content agency, you work with B2B companies. What are some of the things that drive you nuts or like, what are the mistakes that you see that you could give as advice for kind of broad, you know, B2B content marketing strategy for 2021 and beyond? Yeah. So I think the biggest one that I've been preaching about quite a bit, and I'm hopeful that it's starting to sink in with folks. It's the idea that you press publish on a piece of content, you call it a day. Like a lot of folks will come up with these amazing reports that they spend a lot of energy, let's say a hundred hours within an org to do some research on the state of XYZ enterprise growth or their new category that they're going in. And then they spend a fraction of the time to actually promote it and distribute it and get it out there. I think there's a big gap still today in the marketing industry where we overvalue creation of content and undervalue the promotion of content. I always say you create once and you distribute forever. Like you don't want to make the mistake of thinking, okay, we wrote this great piece of content. It's out there. We only send out two tweets. We shared it on LinkedIn once and that's it. That's the end of the job. It doesn't work that way. You want to repurpose that content for the rest of eternity. And this is a consistent struggle for a lot of folks. Like you write a great piece of content in 2019. It's amazing. It's fire. It resonates with people. And then you fast forward to 2021 and you never share for the entire year. Guess what? There's a whole bunch of new people who just started their career and they would love to see that piece that you wrote two years ago, three years ago, four years ago. But because we think in these like always create, always create, always do something new, 
we lose sight of it. I always say folks like you create a piece, you share that on LinkedIn, you share it on Facebook, you go into a subreddit, you share it with a community that's interesting. You go into a Slack community, you share it there, you go into a Facebook group, you find a way to make sure that the content that you're sharing adds value, you monitor comments, you see when people are talking about different subjects and you inject that content there. The whole idea that we had early 2000s around community managers and them running social media needs to be applied to B2B around distribution. We need folks who can own distribution within our orgs or we work with teams and freelancers, et cetera, who can act as our distribution engine as well. We over-index significantly on paid. I think we are going to quickly see a shift where people start to focus on organic distribution just the same. Ooh, I love that take. I've made a note because that's one thing we'll cut out as a clip, but I love that take, the rethinking the role of the social media manager because I think you're 100% right on the distribution. My follow-up question was going to be, who does that? Because I've seen like, you know, a lot, at a lot of companies, you got the writer and you want the writer to write. The writer is not going to be the one who's thinking about, you know, like, whereas you or me might be thinking about like, I'm thinking about how I'm going to promote this, where this is going to go. But it's not natural for the writer to think that. So you, would you hire somebody to do that? Like, like who owns that role and, and how do you make that happen? Because I get what you're saying, but I think a lot of people, it falls down in the actual, like, now it's April... You know, we kind of forgot. We got this great talk from Ross and I heard you, yeah. but like, how do you make it real week, day to day, week to week? Yeah. So it starts with the leadership person in the team and in the org that's going to really actually value the idea that distribution matters. At that point, once you have that person bought in, that person then is going to bring in a person who can act as like the content distributor. That person needs to be in very close collaboration with both the writer and the social media manager if that person already exists in the org. That person then is going to be in the loop with your content calendar. They know what assets are coming. They're also identifying ways in which that asset can be distributed. So when you, your writers are saying, we're going to create this blog post, the content distributor is saying, this piece is going to go into these various channels, and I'm going to create a document that's going to show how that can be promoted. I'm also going to be the person who runs how our team internally is going to assist with the amplification. So when that post goes live, I'm not just going to let it go out. I'm going to be the person who's going to share it in Slack and say, hey, so-and-so, hey, so-and-so, press like on this, press share, et cetera. But I'm also going to be the person who writes a piece for our CEO to share on LinkedIn. I'm also going to be the person who's going to write the Twitter thread that is going to go out from our CMO's Twitter account about this piece. Trust me, there is enough work for this person to do if you have a leadership team that understands the value of distribution. Yeah, man, I love the role. I've hired for it before. I've hired I've hired an intern to, to do it and like wrote up the full job description. I also think it's like a nice little like feeder track into marketing, into content. How do you, it can't be every post though, right? Like if you're publishing five, six times a week, I've always kind of felt this like, you gotta like know what's your like one or two hits that you're gonna focus on promoting. Do you agree with that philosophy? Every single asset is going to have a different goal. Some assets just purely are going to want to rank. So if I write a blog post and it is, what is B2B sales? It makes no sense for us to promote that piece because it's just trying to rank for that keyword. So it's not going to get any social love. But another piece, which may have a more like opinion-based story, is going to require distribution. So the content distributor is going to be tagged on that and know, all right, I'm going to have to create a playbook around that. Now, here's where it gets special. When content hits the market, the market reacts and the market tells you what's good. And when you start to see, all right, this piece is generating a lot of likes on Twitter, or this piece is generating a lots of engagement on Facebook, that's when you double down on that content and you start to distribute it like wild. So 
distributor, let's have a flat rate around like every asset gets this amount of love. They get one tweet, they get one LinkedIn post, and they might get an Instagram story and a few other things. That's the flat rate. Then if a piece is identified with social media goals, it gets an additional layer. It's going into Slack groups, it's going to Facebook groups. We're going to think about it. We're going to create graphics, snippets for video, blah, blah, blah. That's the tier two. But if we see a rate of growth, or if we see a piece generate more engagement, more mentions, more retweets, et cetera, we activate tier three. And tier three is like superpowers. So at this point, it's like, all right, Power Rangers, let's come together and let's distribute this thing across CEOs accounts. We're going to sponsor it in a newsletter. We're going to push this out in Facebook groups. We're going to hire some influencer to talk about it because we want that thing to soar. So you have tiers to which levels you're going to promote your content. Okay, if you're listening to this, what you just got, the ROI on what you just got from Ross is silly. It's silly. <laughs> and I'm going to pause here because people are going to listen to this, but not a lot of people are going to take action on it. And, and this is the huge advantage of content marketing that people didn't have 20 years ago. And I, I see the way that you tweet. And I think I'm going to ask you about social in a little bit, but like, it's all about the feedback loop, right? You, you can't just have like create a piece of content in a vacuum. Like you have to create it, get it out there, see what's happening, adjust in real time. The whole game in content marketing is the feedback loop. And it's like, cause by the way, if you do that whole thing that you just mentioned, Ross, like, and you go all the way to the end, you could be like, wow, this topic blew up. We could do a whole dedicated two-day event on this topic. And now we've learned that like the only way that I've figured out how to be good at social media is and content is I put a ton of stuff out there on social media, see what people react to, then go create the deeper version, the better version. Like the whole reason why I even have this DGMG university thing that we're doing is yeah. from feedback from an initial audience, like from DGMG. The whole way I got to DGMG was from feedback from LinkedIn on Twitter where, wow, people really have a hugger. Like that's the whole game. It's the feedback loop. And, and the way you broke it down is like, people need to pause this and go and re-listen many times. Thank you. No worries. It's the, that's the game. You have to embrace that feedback loop. All right. Talk to me about what role do you think social media plays for a B2B brand today? Because I think a lot of people... A thing I've talked a lot about lately, and I, I think you have a similar opinion, is like you've mentioned like having this person tweet for the CMO or CEO using the personalities, the faces inside of a company as the brand account. How do you think about that? How do you think of the roles of, you know, like, let's just talk about LinkedIn and Twitter specifically. How do you think about those roles from a brand perspective? Yeah, so it's an amazing time to be on Twitter or LinkedIn because both have given marketers finally a great organic platform to distribute your content. In the early days of LinkedIn, you could only reach your small group of people who you were connected to. Now the algorithm is open and you can reach millions of people with a single post. Similarly on Twitter, before it was very tight niche. Discover, that whole section on Twitter is what I believe is one of the low hanging fruits for any marketer. Unfortunately, brands, I'm sorry, but Twitter is not putting your branded content directly in there as much as they're putting individuals who are putting out content that's interesting and unique. So as a result, what I believe is true is you need to elevate your people. Your people need to get excited about content and storytelling, et cetera. And you want to use that to kind of build a bit of a tribe on social. I think social has created an amazing opportunity to reduce the cycle in which you would go through for a sales process because now people feel connected to you as an individual. So marketers have the ability to personify their teammates. And as a result of that, 
it's easier for me to send a DM to someone who I feel I have a connection with. So that's true across LinkedIn and it's true across Twitter. From a content marketing lens, that feedback loop has never been stronger. You don't have to go out and create all of the content yourself to get indications of what type of content will be fire on LinkedIn or Twitter. If you actually take the time to actually just reverse engineer some of the most successful accounts on LinkedIn and you take all of their posts and you just review and you say, all right, this post got 70,000, this one got 60,000, this one got 20. You focus on the ones that generated the most engagement. You can start to see, all right, this is how they're talking. What are the themes? Do they always start with an opinion? How do they write the copy for these things? You can reverse engineer the success of others to inform your own approach. And it doesn't matter the niche. Like that's the thing that people don't often get is that there's so many subcultures on channels like Twitter and LinkedIn, et cetera, that you can apply lessons from one specific niche and then take those and bring it over to yours. Like I remember when I first started to see like how Twitter game worked, it was from FinTech. And I was like, okay, so everybody in FinTech is tweeting out a certain way and their content's getting a bunch of engagement. I need to reverse engineer what the best tweets have been from stock tweets, et cetera, and apply that same thinking to how I craft my content. Then I started sending tweets, sending them out, and I started to see more engagement and it just started to have the light bulb go off. So I think the value that marketers have today when it comes to LinkedIn and Twitter is twofold. One, the ability to amplify your brand, get your story out there, get the names on your team out there, et cetera, but also get so close to the culture. And when I say culture, I'm talking about in your niche, in your industry, you can understand the culture of the people who you're trying to resonate with. And you can use that to inspire stories that are always going to work, always going to resonate because the content is coming up for you. Like you can go on social and you can see, all right, people truly believe X, Y, and Z. So if I talk about X, Y, and Z, if I take a contrarian approach to X, Y, and Z, it's going to be fire. People are going to engage. People are going to yell, et cetera. There's a lot of game being given away for free on all these channels that people can leverage. A hundred percent, man, you're good at this. A hundred percent. Like that's, and by the way, it's not always going to work. No, However, okay. at least you, at least you go into it that with that mindset, like versus like most people are like, yeah, I'm, you know, I got a content idea versus like, look, I saw a tweet from you recently that was, that was really smart, which is like, you're basically, and this has been a trick you could do for a while. You're using Substack as an example, right? Substack's a really popular writing platform. You said, here's a B2B marketing opportunity, find a niche in Substack, find 10 newsletters that are relevant to your niche. And your point, you're talking about sponsoring them, but like the other example is like, what are they writing about? And so if there is a niche newsletter on Substack that has 10,000 readers or 1,000 readers, what are they writing about? And and then figure out, like I, I used to do this all the time with um, inbound.org and Reddit, like going into those threads and being like, wow, this post is really popular. And so even if you have no audience, even if you're starting a new brand, you can go and follow people like Ross or whoever in, in your niche and figure out like what things have already been proven. Like you, I'm just looking at your Twitter feed, for example, like this is an older post that you have, but it's like, you wrote out like seven underrated life skills. And my guess was you just were like sitting on the couch and you had a bunch of thoughts and you just kind of spit them all out, right? That post had 76 retweets and 233 like likes, right? And so you could use that as a, if you're trying to think about what content would do well on YouTube, I bet this would be a great YouTube video. And so if you're like, hey, I'm Ross, I'm the founder of Foundation. In this video, I'm gonna tell you seven habits that have changed my life. 
exactly. boom. And all you do is talk about those videos. Like you're, you're full, you're, you're like bulletproofing your success exactly. because you've already put that out in the world. Yeah, that same tweet becomes a YouTube video. That same tweet becomes a carousel on LinkedIn. That same carousel on LinkedIn becomes a blog post that I turn into slides that goes into Medium, that goes up on right. Share. It also just so happens that I'm going to share them on my Instagram story and my Twitter story, Facebook story, fleet, et cetera. That content is created once but then it's distributed forever. That's the model, that's the approach. You just take these pieces of content and you remix them over and over again. And to build on that like whole concept of diving into sites like inbound.org and subreddits, I always call this idea like the Sherlock homeboy approach where you go deep into these channels where you're investigating what resonated, what hit, and then you take that and then you level it up. So if I see on inbound.org or growthhackers.com that a piece that is generating a lot of engagement is about how to do SEO outreach correctly and it only shares three tips, I'm going to go above and beyond to deliver 30 tips. I'm going to make my tips super actionable and then I'm going to come back to that same community and share it to them. Then I'm going to do the same thing on a tweet. I'm going to repurpose it other ways. So I do believe like reverse engineering that Sherlock Homeboy methodology is so key when it comes to like learn what people want. That's essentially content market fit. Yeah. I mean, that, that that's the biggest thing. Like if you're, I think this is why a lot of B2B companies stink at content and socials because what they do is they think of just things as it relates to my business. And so I am a CRM company. And so I'm going to put out CRM related content. No, no, no. The opportunity is who would buy your product and what things are they interested in as it relates to themselves. And so like you have to pick one or two topics. Like for me, the only my Twitter and my LinkedIn took off when I just, when I kind of shut it down and only talked about marketing and do I have a lot more to offer as a person to my wife and family? And as of course, but what you see from me online is 99% marketing solely because I've decided that that is the niche that I want to build a community and audience in because it's valuable to me. It's valuable to your business. And so you have to think of the same, you can't just be putting out stuff related to CRM because that's what your company is. Exactly. And I think marketers, like a lot of the brand accounts are struggling because they're just sending out links to their articles and they're not doing any native content for the platform. I used to get into the trap in the early days of Twitter of just like, I'm going to be a buffer. And I was just buffering up every link I came across. Anybody who's writing a blog post, I'm going to queue it up. I'm going to curate it. I'm going to promote it. And I was able to get some slow growth. But people don't just want to connect with you as a curator. They want to connect with you as a creator. And if you can curate a bit, but also create a lot more, you're going to be strong relationships with folks. And that's Dude, your last, your last 10 tweets, this is perfect. Your last 10 tweets, you, this is not on purpose. Well, you know this, but like your last 10 tweets, only two of them have links in them. Right. And so like what you're doing is you're putting out value and information, value and information. So when you do put out a link, which all of your links, you know, you're sending traffic back to foundation, but like you've now put out nine tweets that make you trust you as an individual. And you're like, yeah, this dude knows what he's talking about. He's smart. Okay. Link number 10 is now a link to your blog, but I'm not like, Ugh, I don't want this dude's blog. I'm like, no, he knows what he's talking about. I want to read his longer take on it. Exactly. A hundred percent. That's the play. You want to build the relationship, build the community. As you talked about, a lot of my tweets will be like, Hey folks, let's play a game. Let's pretend it's 1960. David Ogilvy just wrote his first book. How do we promote that in the modern era? And the community starts to have some fun and we start to engage as like humans and marketers 
That's what it's all about. Brands can do the same thing. For some reason, we think that because you're a brand, you have to just promote yourself, promote yourself, promote yourself. No, you want to build a relationship. You want to build those bonds as well. How do you ultimately, if you're coaching, a, like if I hired you to help coach me and from a content perspective, yeah. at the inside of a SaaS company, at the CMO level, like how would you want me to report out on content? Because I dig everything that you're saying. But like if I'm the director of content or head of content or CMO and I have a scorecard for how I'm going to determine the success of content, it's hard because there's some lead gen, but not all lead gen. There's some brand, but not all brand. There's some social. So like, how do you, what's in the scorecard? You know, if, yeah. if, is there two or three things? How do you measure content? Yeah. So it's very, we lean heavy on proactive metrics, meaning things that you control. So we lean heavy on thinking, okay, what's the output look like as it relates to these various elements with the hope that at a foundational level, we've already collaborated and connected to a point where you understand storytelling, you know how to distribute, you know how to promote, et cetera. So once we have a foundational understanding that, okay, you get best practices, you get what you need to do, then it's proactive metrics. How often is your company and your org putting out certain types of assets that we've identified? What is then happening? What is the proactive metrics around how often are these pieces being promoted and tweeted and shared, et cetera? And we take this model from looking at media companies. Media companies such as, I think it's Barstool, I was listening to a podcast that they put out, whether you hate them or love them, indifferent, I'm talking about just pure play, marketing engine brilliance. They measure the writers and their teams based off of output. So when you are keeping track of output and then you're tracking traffic that individuals are getting or categories, you can apply that same methodology to your company. So I would say, all right, Dave, how much content is your team putting out? When the pieces of content are being pushed out and published, how often are those pieces being promoted? Okay, how often are you creating evergreen tweets and LinkedIn posts that don't have a link? And we actually would count and have a dashboard tracking those items. And then parallel to that, we would keep track of actual direct metrics associated with these assets. So out of the assets that we've included in our portfolio that had the sole goal of opinion and thought leadership, et cetera, we want to track social shares. So in this cohort of content, how much social engagement are we getting? All right, we have another piece of our portfolio that is SEO content. How much traffic is that generating? Then we have a calculator that we are creating every quarter. All right, is that generating opportunities? Is it turning into sales qualified leads? And then you do that across your portfolio while still keeping an eye on proactive metrics, which you control, because there's a lot of variabilities and kind of coin flips associated with the act of publishing. I love it. I also think like just not having the one, it's tough to be successful if you have one metric, right? Which is like if the content team, now maybe that is the case, by the way, if you're the CMO and you say, I only want content to focus on leads. Well, right or wrong, if that's the case, that's a guardrail, right? And then you can then make decisions against that verse. If you say, well, I think content is important for our brand and our reputation and and we want to build, you know, we want to look good online. Okay, well, that maybe is a sub goal that's different than leads. Yeah, I do think like, as much as I love the North Star idea, like you just need one metric and that's all you focus on, et cetera. I think it can be short-sighted. Like if you reverse engineer some of the most successful SaaS companies of all time, let's look at Salesforce, let's look at HubSpot. They don't just care about one metric. 
They care about a holistic totally. look, their marketing engine. So it's so difficult in the early stages of a company, like when you're pre, let's say 50 mil ARR, like it's difficult to start thinking long-term, but you don't want to get so caught up in just like leads, 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 leads that you forget the bigger vision because like- but Yeah, I mean, think, think about yourself, right? This is, goes back to empathy and, and just think about like, how do you- thinking about the culture, like you talked about, like, how do you buy? Which brands do you like? And so like, which brands and people do you follow online? And you don't only follow them because they're only promoting their stuff. And so you have to reverse engineer that. Wow. Yeah. Oh, Hey, you love Barstool. Okay. So why do you follow them on Instagram? Even though you don't, you know, they're not posting articles there. Well, I like the kind. Okay. So how can you be that for people, right? The reason that most B2B brands never build a successful, let's say Twitter following or Instagram following is because they think about those channels just as like amplification for existing content versus like, no, no, no. If you gave me budget and let me do it, I could blow up an Instagram page for you. If you told me you sell to salespeople, because I would make a I would make a sales page that's more like corporate bro and it's funny and there's jokes about sales life and sales culture. And by the way, it's hosted by the brand, not like check out our new blog post. Hundred percent. That's the play. Like I think a lot of the challenges within B two B is that there's a lot of boring marketers and a lot of boring marketers have been in control of the marketing engine within these orgs and less low risk marketers are coming into these roles low risk marketers going into organizations where there's a bit of a culture already established. And they're like, all right, if we want to be this brand, Acme, I'm not going to call it anybody who's boring, but let's say it's Acme brands. We want to be just like Acme. Okay. What's Acme doing on social? They're doing boring things. They're just tweeting out their articles. They're not trying to do anything ridiculous because they're already the leader. There is a difference between a leader in a space and an incumbent. An incumbent needs to do things to allow themselves to elevate beyond and surpass the leader. When Salesforce was first launched, I love Benioff's approach. In his story, the brand itself is amazing. In the early days of Salesforce, they didn't just say, all right, Siebel, all right, Oracle, you folks are doing great. We're going to do exactly what you do. No, they started to protest outside of their conferences and started to say, software is the future. Software is dead, blah, 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 all of this stuff. Hardware is dead. Your space is broken, et cetera. And they were able to generate a lot of press. That's what you do as an incumbent. When you are a leader, you have to take a little bit less risk. You have to just maintain relationships. You have to own your moat. You have to own your space that you are in. And then you allow some others to kind of get in, but then you'll acquire them, et cetera. We make the mistake of copying leaders rather than looking at what's happening in B2C and taking inspiration from it and then applying that same methodology in our place. I love yeah. Supreme as a brand. So B2B marketers can t- learn a lot of lessons from how every single time Supreme puts out a launch, it's not just a blog post that announces a new feature. They go to town. They are engaging influencers. They're putting up stories. They're doing a countdown. They are making it seem bigger than it actually is. Why don't we do that? Like, why are B2B marketers thinking in the same way? Like, that's the playbook. That's the approach you can take. 100%. There's many reasons. I think most of them is like, people are boring. I also think people don't know how to look at, they don't know how to look at Supreme and and find a way to translate that. Because it's like, well, we don't sell hoodies. Well, that's not the point. Like, you're trying to sell a product to a market. Yeah. Period. How do you get inside the heads of the people that you're that you're trying to sell to? I want to give you some time. If there's anything, anything that you get fired up about or or on your mind that we should leave people with before we wrap up. 
Yeah, like I think one of the big low-hanging fruits that I've been very interested in recently, but I haven't geeked out about it as much as I would like to. And I'd be curious, Dave, to get your take on this. But like I was talking about it on social where I think the future is going to be like the same way that NFL teams, NBA teams do a draft and they bring in these people who are in college and they're killing it. I think there's a bit of a mini draft happening in the world of marketing where people are seeing the influencers and the people who are personal brands creating great content and they're going out and they're hiring people who have built a reputation in a space. And there's never been a better time to do it. Whether you look at like fast, whether you look at privy and like the association with folks who have built up their brand and you bring them in, it's an amazing play. I think there's going to be a huge shift in the B2B world in the next few years where people start draft getting draft picks where it's like, all right, you built up a great newsletter, let's say, I'm going to hire you. You're now going to a hundred percent because what people, but, but like what people want is they're like, ah, they, they're not sure how to measure it or invest in it. And so what happens is a lot of content gets like just pushed down. And so it's like, Oh, you want to build a, Oh, Hey, we're going to, we want to build a great social media following. Okay. So who'd you hire to do that? Um, well, one of our board members, uh, nieces for the summer, she's going to run our Twitter account. Like, okay, then guess what you're going to get from that. I'm yeah. sure she knows how to use Twitter, but you're going to get her 107 followers versus like, if you really want to do it, hire somebody who's built that audience online, not so you can tap into their audience, but so they can apply those same approaches. And so like, this used to be the case. I remember Mike Volpe, who's a CMO at HubSpot and my like mentor, you know, they, back in the day, they would hire like journalists to build out their blog. It's the same thing. It's like, who's amazing at Instagram or LinkedIn or Twitter it's probably worth hiring them, even not not even in a full time capacity, to have them run those channels for you, or else you're just going to get the mediocre results that you'd get from your your niece. That's influencer marketing and B two B on steroids, and I don't think it's happening enough yet. But the brands that get it and start to do it well are going to crush. Like, yeah. imagine drafting your dream team and getting X, Y, and Z. Every single person, the person who's killing it on Twitter, the person who's killing it on LinkedIn, the person who's killing it on Instagram bring all of those people you've got like the golden state warriors of a few years ago like it would uh, be totally and i think that and, it, and, and it's happy it, it's also possible like i think a year ago if we were having this conversation it's like well, it's harder but like now because of covid because of you know the rise of remote like you can there's so many people that are you know freelancing or doing other jobs you know you could so if you know somebody let's say you follow you, you got a great company and you think their social media presence is awesome find out who runs that right. send them a dm on the side and say hey you know could we pay you you know three grand a month and you know to get a couple you know 20 hours and, and could you help us build our social media presence like that's the type that's of it. thinking that's going to make the difference it's association like just being associated with some of these folks elevate a brand. So if you're an early stage startup, let's say you closed a big round, great, congratulations. But how do you get credibility with your audience? You get credibility through the association with somebody who's already seen as a leader in the eyes of your audience. So if I'm going to launch a new brand in a certain niche, I'm going to look for who is an influencer in this space and they're going to be on my payroll because I want to hire them and engage them to not only help my organizational culture and grow, but also to provide perspective to the senior leadership team around how they can build their personal brands, but also just through association, all boats are going to rise together. I think there's a big, big play there. Something I'm even thinking about, like it's definitely something that foundation where it's like, all right, we've got some folks here with decent socials. Do we need to double down on this entire angle a little bit more? 
Yeah. What you said is is great credibility. Cause to me, that's the other like non lead gen goal of content and social and brand is like, can you build credibility through your brand? And that's a little bit harder to measure from like a funnel standpoint. But I think, you know, because like, look, if you just invite C-list speakers to speak on your Zoom calls and webinars, and you're always going to be associated in that crowd. But like in the same, you know, it's especially true from a brand perspective. Yeah. Like I saw someone do a club host the other night with Elon Musk and it's like, all right, person who's hosting that, congratulations. You just got a handful of new followers. Yeah. Solely going to follow you. That was last night. Yeah, it was last night. It's like, of course, you're going to get a bunch of engagement on your account because you're hosting this. It's like those types of associations just are game changing. And the, 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 the example from before, the company that brought in Obama, they're now remembered as the company that brought in Obama, not the legacy provider of database, IT, you know, whatever. Exactly. So from your end, Dave, I'm curious, like, how do you think you bring that conversation up to the C-suite? Like, how do you position that to the C-suite? and get their mind thinking about the long term on, okay, how do we actually do this and activate it? If you're a CMO, you think, all right, we need to start hiring some folks with a presence. How do you position that internally? For me, it starts with a story. And like, I think if I would go in and say, I would zoom all the way out and think about like, who are we as a brand and where do we want to go? And so like, hey, we are, I'll just use a CRM example, as you talked about, right? Like we're the next, like we want to put Salesforce out of business. That's our ambitious startup company goal. Okay, great. It has to start with some type of story, some why. If you're just like, you know, random company, it's not going to work. So, okay. So we want to, that's our strategy as a brand. And so therefore we got to do a bunch of different things. And so if we want to be seen as the new Salesforce, then we got to be seen as pioneers and leaders in this space. And so what I want to do is I want to go and I've identified three people in this space who could be potential influencers for us. Boom. This person, she was VP of whatever at Salesforce back in the day. Now she's CMO at this company. She's 15 years at Salesforce. Everybody knows her in the Salesforce mafia. Like I want to tap into her and hire her as a whatever. Like you have to start to piece the story sure. together. So like, I'm not talking about, here's how much lift I think we'll get. It's like, no, no. And so and so she's going to be our evangelist and she's going to run. Here's what's going to look like. Twice a month, she's going to host Zoom calls with people from her network. She's also going to host a weekly clubhouse chat. Uh, we're also going to have a newsletter for her and she's going to have her own Twitter account. And the goal over the course of the year is to do um, two interviews a month. And so that's 24 interviews a year. And so by the end of 2021, we'll be able to say, I'm not talking about followers. I'm not talking about traffic. I'm talking about by the end of 2021, we will be able to sit here in this meeting and tell you that we have had 25 of the most influential people in this space on our podcast. Would any of you think that's valuable? Right. Everybody's hand is going to go up. And by the way, from doing that, we also will get all of the content. We're going to record it all. And so every Zoom call, every hour Zoom call can also be clips for social media. And by the way, because we had those 25 people on, I'm going to ask each one of those 25 people at the end of the interview, just like I'm going to ask you later, Ross, is like, who else should I get? Okay, so now I've gotten a warm intro to this other badass person from her. And so there's so many benefits beyond lead gen, but like, can I, you know, and and I would create some type of proposal that's telling that story and spell out, here's what it's going to cost. Solely kind of come up with a plan based on output as opposed to like, we're going to grow our Twitter followers, but I'm going to say, I'm going to hire this person. Here's how much content we're going to get. Here's what we're going to do with the content. I love that. And once you have the content, here's the other special part about this. This was a one-year engagement experiment or test. You now have 24 pieces of content that for the rest of eternity, you can take snippets from, remix, distribute, and promote. Like that's the play. 
it's an investment, right? You invest once and then you have that content. Totally. Look, you, you had this line about Barstool. So I'll say it about Gary Vee. People, some people love Gary Vee. Some people hate him. I love him. I think he's a master at a marketing perspective. I don't care. I, whatever about, I don't hustle. I have two kids. I mean, I do hustle, but like, different. <laughs> but, but look, I think what you should do is go study Gary, Gary Vee's Instagram page because you could go to his Instagram page today and there's probably some video of him at a keynote from six years ago that's still relevant today. And so to your point, Ross, about creating less and using content more, you could actually say, you know what? I want to shut down our whole content operation and go all in on just these 25 pieces of content because I think we're going to get enough content for months. I actually think this is the sneaky, like as a CMO, this is how I also position events. Like if you're going to do a million dollar event, user conference, those things get expensive really quickly. The ROI, if you're talking about the ROI as like a just straight up pipeline perspective, how much sales are we going to generate at this event? You're thinking about it wrong. I think of an event as like, over 50% of the ROI on the event is in content creation because you got a budget. We're going to have all these big name speakers. We're going to have all this content. By the way, while everyone's speaking at our event, we're also going to have them backstage to do a separate interview. And so like, I try to make the justification in, in a content ask yeah. and we're also going to generate revenue. But like the huge Trojan horse for me in podcasting and doing this and creating content is the ability to get just so much content that you can leverage for later. 100%. I think that's it. I think the event piece I haven't thought or heard a lot about recently, but I love that take. If you can optimize your events when we're when the world's back open to have like podcasts on site with your guests, the people who are speaking, you get them to like create content in addition to what they're talking about on stage. That value of that long term could be ridiculous. And it, it also goes the other way, by the way. So like, let's just use this as an example. Let's say I was going to do a DGMG event right. next year. Yeah. One easy way to do that would be, I've done interviews with you. I got all these other people. Which interviews did this audience like the best? Oh, they love the interview with Ross. And so guess what? One of the first people I'm going to hit up to speak at the event is going to be you. And I already feel good about that because it's already been proven. We've already tested that people are interested in this. And I think that's, there's just so, if you start taking that longer term approach and thinking about how can I leverage all of these things, as opposed to like, well, this blog post needs to get 1200 unique visitors. It's, it's just not going to work. Not going to work. I think that goes back to our whole conversation about reverse engineering, Sherlock Homeboy approach. Like I always ask folks before I go on a podcast or before I contribute a post, like what's the best podcast episode that you've ever recorded? Let me listen to it because I'm going to find a way to try to be better than it. And I think yeah. the same thing has to be applied with like events. All right, here's all of our events. Which was the best? Okay, we're going to re-engage that person in the future for guest blog posts. Maybe we're going to sponsor that person's newsletter because clearly it resonated, it worked, et cetera. Double down on the things that are working for your brand. Love it. All right, let's wrap up. Plug yourself, plug your stuff, and then and then we'll get out of here. Awesome. So folks, I would say definitely find me on Twitter at the coolest cool. That's my uh, Twitter handle. Started it in university and it's stuck. So I'm using it across all the platforms. You can find me there. It is a throwback to a Lupe Fiasco song if you're curious. Also happy to connect on LinkedIn. Do a quick search, Ross Simmons. I would love to connect. If you are someone who's into B2B marketing, who loves content, our team at Foundation is hiring and we would love to hear from you if you are interested in starting a new chapter in the world of content creation and marketing. You've gotten excited by any of these conversations and you have a newsletter that you want someone to sponsor. Also hit me up. 
This is me just trying to essentially find ways to give you money, but work with you as well. So hit me up. I would love to connect with anybody who found value in this. And shout out to Lupe Fiasco, by the way. You know, <laughs> a, a staple of great hip hop from, I would say, probably 2007 to 2010. So that's great. Golden era. The golden era. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I got a couple of things I want to ask you uh, over email. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you a note in a little bit. But dude, this is awesome. I would love to do it again sometime. I appreciate you. And uh, thanks, dude. Appreciate see it. See you, man. Bye. Cheers. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the B2B Marketing Leaders Podcast. If you got something out of this episode, then I know you'll get even more out of DGMG. That's my members-only community for B2B marketers. There's over 2,300 members in there right now, and it's awesome because it's really like having a sounding board outside of your company as a marketer. Inside of the group, you can get feedback, recommendations on tools, on vendors. You can get campaign ideas. I've seen people post, hey, what do you think of this ad? Do you think this copy would work? Is anybody using this new tool? What do you think of this vendor? And it's the reason that I'm in the group basically every day sharing my own stuff too because it's just a community I want to be a part of. And because you're here listening to B2B Marketing Leaders, I got a special deal for you. You can get in the group for just $1 for your first month. After that, it's $10 a month. And let's be honest, it's super easy to expense at your company. It'll fly under the radar. There's 10 to 12 new posts every single day, and you can go back and see all the posts since the beginning of time. I know that if you're in B2B marketing, you'll see the ROI from the community instantly, and that's why I want you to join for a dollar. I want to make it a no-brainer. So go and check it out. There's a link in the show notes of this episode, a special link just for you to go and join for $1. All right, see you.